Welcome to This Week in California Education, brought to you by EdSource Radio. I'm Lewis Friedberg. And I'm John Fensterwald. Well, John, you and I are here this week at the Education Writers Association Annual Conference. It's at the USC campus, and so we're going to be jumping off from a number of issues that came up here, one of which is looking at teacher diversity, an ongoing issue nationally and also in California. Also, another important topic that was taken on at the event, the Education Writers Association event, was uh, looking at school discipline and alternative strategies to school discipline. And uh, we can't leave the podcast without talking about the governor's race and the state superintendent of public instructions race. Things are heating up on that front and it's less than three weeks to the June 5th primary. So uh, lots of money going in to both sides and we'll be talking about that. But first, we wanted to bring in David Washburn, who is an EdSource reporter who this week wrote a three-part series on restorative justice, which is an increasingly popular strategy as an alternative to suspensions and expulsions. David, welcome. Good to be here, Lewis. Well, David, I noted that there was a panel today at the Education Writers Association meetings at USC on rethinking discipline. So there is a lot of rethinking going on. One of the approaches is restorative justice. Just briefly, tell us what is that? So restorative justice is this idea that rather than using punitive uh, discipline measures like ex suspensions, expulsions, even in-school suspensions, that if you build relationships between uh, students and also between parents and teachers, that you will uh, – and then using conflict mediation strategies on top of that, you can diffuse a lot of the behaviors that will that a lot, a lot of times lead to these uh, uh, more punitive responses. And for kids getting pushed out of school. Absolutely. And then we get into the whole school to prison pipeline issue that is very much on the table right now. Right, right. And that's the idea is, is that you keep them in school, you build better school climates, and that will that is going to lead to a reduction in, in, in the school to prison pipeline. So this sounds pretty labor intensive and it requires the school district or schools to really decide that they want to do this. How extensive is this happening in California schools? It, the awareness of restorative justice, I would say, throughout the state is high. You talk to superintendents, you talk to principals, there's a, there's a, a high degree of awareness. Now as far as implementation, it is that's a lot more spotty. You've got some of your urban districts, LA Unified, Oakland Unified, Santa Ana is another example where it is it is built into the budget. LAUSD, LA Unified did put in, I understand, like $10 million into restorative justice strategies? Yes, they have, they've got a budget of about $10 million, between 10 and $11 million for restorative justice. And that includes you know, a lot of training for teachers. It includes restorative justice coordinators in schools. I was in a school, uh, one of the schools I profiled has its own restorative justice coordinator at the school. The entire discipline philosophy is built around restorative and Oakland, justice. Oakland also put in? Oakland's budget is about $2.5 million. That's real money. It is real money. Some would say that it still pales in comparison to, for example, the school police forces. Uh, uh, LA Unified, I think their school police budget is some, somewhere around $70 million, kind of as a comparison. But it is. I mean, that is real money. Those are examples. Other districts that are large districts are not putting nearly as much in. Long Beach Unified uh, has not really bought into restorative justice in the same way, about 250000 
$250,000. Yeah, $250,000, which, you know, in an $800 million budget, that's not a lot. San Diego Unified, after years of talking about being a restorative district, is finally putting more resources into it. Their budget is close to about a million dollars these days. So it does cost money, but school districts are under some pressure because under the local control funding formula and the local control and accountability plans, school districts are expected to reduce suspensions and expulsion rates. And so I imagine lots of school districts are at least looking at different approaches. Exactly. And and what you have is that this is why the awareness is so high, because there is this pressure to reduce suspensions. It's now one of the indicators, the statewide indicators on the dashboard. So everybody is thinking a lot about it. That's where you get into some of the stickier conflicts or, or the controversy surrounding restorative justice, because there, there are a lot of teachers who feel like that there's this pressure to reduce suspensions and that the district says, okay, I'm going to send you to a one-day restorative justice training, and, and there you go. And they, they're feeling like they're, that the resources, the training resources, are not there for them uh, at this point. You're getting a lot of that. But David, I also understand there is some opposition to these alternative practices. And California is a big state, so very hard to generalize. And that's one of the challenges to really get a sense of how extensive these new strategies are being implemented. But what is your sense about the unhappiness amongst teachers, some teachers in some districts? The general philosophy of restorative justice, people are not adverse to that. The idea that you build relationships and that you keep kids in school rather than kicking them out is something that most, you know, almost everyone will agree with. The issue is is that there is two questions. One is is that the resources which we which we already mentioned, but the other is that are there consequences? Do you know, you have restorative justice circles for example, and do they feel like that there are consequences that are coming along with this so that so the students feel like there is accountability? Some would say and, and some do say that there's not enough of that built into the restorative justice and you, you, you get pushback from teachers along those lines. Mm-hmm. And did that come up on the panel at the EWA yes. conference? Yes, you had you had a, a teacher who was a former teacher and he was even a school board member out of in Cincinnati who talked a lot about that. That you know his you know the teachers have all this pressure, you know, they still have to this they're graded by the standardized tests and things like that and they need to maintain order in their classroom and there's some concern that is there enough resources, is there enough being provided to teachers to maintain that order, you know, in this framework that we're talking about. David, you'll be looking at this issue in the next several months? Absolutely. I will continue to follow it, following it both in terms of implementation in schools and and also the budgets as well. Okay. Well, thank you for your work so far. Thank you. Glad to be here. Another theme at the conference was diversity, particularly how to attract more diverse teachers into the workforce, which has been a an issue in California. Ongoing problem, we wrote about that a few weeks ago, that uh, California is actually making progress. About one in three of California's teachers are teachers of color. But the issue there is that the student body is becoming more diverse. So actually, in some cases, the gap, the student-teacher diversity gap is actually growing. Yeah, and then retention is a real issue as well. And that came up on a panel at the EWA conference. And one of the interesting points that came up is that we can't really only be thinking about teacher diversity. We also need to be looking at diversity among the school district leadership, the superintendents and the principals who really actually do a lot of the hiring. And there's some real challenges there. 
one of the people who's been really looking at this is Darlene Robles. She's a professor at the USC Rossier School of Education, actually was a longtime county superintendent of education in LA County, superintendent in Montebello District for many years, so she's really been in the trenches. And I asked her why she felt this issue of school district leadership was so important. We did talk with her outside in the quadrangles to give you a flavor of uh, USC uh, during the summertime. Well, I think we know from the research and the literature, leadership matters. And so we know that teacher leadership matters in the schools, but the principal sets the culture of that school and how well teachers will thrive, how students will thrive, how parents are engaged. But even from the principal level, the superintendent has to set that norm as well. So we often forget that, that how that leadership is developed from both the superintendent level, along with his, his or her board of education, will really determine how that culture is built at the school site. So it really is important to think of that as well, not just the teacher diversity, but who runs our schools, who runs our school districts. How diverse is the leadership, the superintendency? In California, we would expect we have a diverse population, there would be more diversity at that level. It's not. I remember when I was first hired as the superintendent of Montebello Unified School District back in the early 90s, um, I think at that time in L.A. County, I was the first Latina superintendent of a unified school district. And that was in the 90s. It wasn't, it was you know, yes, maybe it's a long time ago, but it wasn't, you know, the 50s or 60s. Um, and then when I left, um, the numbers had even decreased. I think there were maybe 10 or 12 uh, Latina superintendents in the state. Um, I still, the school districts in California are still run by men and white men. A very few, I I can't even think of right now, maybe one or two Asian superintendents, uh, very few uh, black, and and again, very few in terms of, uh, of Latinos as well. So it's an issue of a pipeline and support to move individuals forward uh, and provide that sponsorship and mentorship to uh, increase the number of leaders of diverse backgrounds. So let me just flesh it out a little bit why this is important. Mm-hmm. Presumably this is not because the superintendents are racist or no. in terms of their hiring and no. so on, but how does that play into the whole recruitment and hiring process? Well, diversity, again, is about providing a different lens, right? Let's just take gender, right? Mm-hmm. Men come with a lens uh, that provides their leadership style, how they interact, how they work with people. Women provide a different lens. So we want to have those different perspectives and maybe take some blinders off that we're not intentionally thinking about, but we want to have that interaction. You and I have a different perspective and sharing that to get to better outcomes. So when you also add race and ethnicity, um, you also provide a different lens and perspective that we are going to miss opportunities to expand and have everyone grow. Diversity absolutely brings more perspectives to the table and produces better outcomes for corporate, business, as well as schools. We've been talking with Darlene Robles, a veteran educator in California, joined by some students back here. Thank you for talking with us today and look forward to staying in touch with you in the future. Thank you. You know, Lewis, we're just a couple days away from our conversation with both candidates, leading candidates for the superintendent of public instruction. That's Wednesday at 9.30. We're going to be broadcasting that on our EdSource website. Yeah, it won't be a formal debate, right, John? But you and I will be talking with Marshall Tuck and uh, 
Tony Thurmond, the two leading candidates for the state superintendent of public instruction. Yeah, we hope to make it a little bit interactive and have the two talk to each other if they disagree about some things, which I imagine they will. And so this, as you said, will be live streamed. And so those of you listening, please tune in at that time and it will be carried live on our website, right? That's the right. Ed edsource.org. Yes. So I guess one of the questions is uh, June 5th primary, um, will the outcome of the race, the state superintendent race be resolved at that time? Because this is a little different from the governor's race. It, whoever gets more than 50% in that race, and it's a nonpartisan race, is automatically elected to that office. As opposed to the governor's race, even if you get more than 50%, you will go on to the November election and be competing against the, your opponent. So what do you think is gonna happen then on June 5th in the superintendent's race? You know, there are really only, f there are four candidates on the ballot and two are relatively unknown. But so it's really a question whether one Marshall Tucker or Tony Thurman gets 50%. And I don't think it's going to happen. It's rare that that would occur. I don't think either candidate expects that. But, well, we could be in for a surprise. Well, the, the issue there is that the state superintendent race is pretty low profile. And most voters probably haven't heard of most of these candidates, if right. any. And so they will vote for even the candidates who have put absolutely no money into the race just because they're on the ballot. And so for to get 50% or more of the vote in that race is very difficult, even if, so. you, even if you only have mine, other minor candidates on the ballot. But the most interesting developments, this week at least, has been in the governor's race, where millions of dollars in outside independent expenditure committee monies are going to support the race of Antonio Viragosa, the former Los Angeles mayor. And most of those funds are coming from pro-charter advocates, some in California and some outside of California. Pro-charter and also pro-choice. And it was a particularly interesting donation this week, wasn't well, it? Well, pro-choice, you mean like uh, school choice uh, the, or the Betsy DeVos kind of variety. Yes, that kind. Exactly. <laughs> yes. Well, one of the, I'd say, more notable contributions was that there, uh, Bill Oben Obendorf, who is actually has been close to Betsy DeVos and uh, served on her on the board of her organization, the American Federation for Children, that uh, he actually took over from her, from Betsy DeVos, when she became Secretary of Education. Right, and so that's a really a, a pro-voucher organization, and which which raises the question is. Why is he supporting that, since California really has no interest in vouchers? It's certainly a strong charter school movement, but that's a very, very different flavor. Well, that's true, uh, but the complexities to this whole charter debate, and as you and I have talked about it, it doesn't break down neatly into pro-charter versus anti-charter. Some of the supporters are, yes, definitely favorably, favorably inclined to charters, but they are not against having most kids being served by public schools. And on the other side, the so-called anti-charter forces are not really against all charter schools, but are concerned about kind of unlimited expansion, the impact on the finances of school districts, the, the question of whether there is enough oversight and accountability. So, so it's, it doesn't break down in neat black and white terms. But it is true that uh, this con contribution from Bill Oberndorf does 
kind of play into and add fuel to one of the key criticisms. People who have concerns about charter expansion in California, that this is really kind of a stalking horse for the pro-voucher agenda of Betsy DeVos and by extension her boss, uh, President Trump. Well, it's hard to turn, it's hard to reject $2 million when it comes to supporting, even though it's independent expenditure, your behalf, but nonetheless, uh, I'm sure the CTA is making a big deal about it, making that connection with the voucher movement and it's sort of like guilt by donation or guilt by association and saying, oh, it's more billionaires, just, you know, they really want to privatize the schools, which which is an effective, perhaps, response, but it, there's no in, indication that Antonio Villaraigosa is interested in that, in voucher movement at all. Well, that, that's true. Again, getting to the complexities of the issue, Antonio Villaraigosa is n- never, he would not support vouchers. And in fact, the Charter School Association of California, whose political arm set up this independent expenditure committee to whom Bill Obendorf gave his $2 million, The Charter School Association itself has come out very strongly against vouchers in California. They think it's a non-starter. They don't believe in it. Right. It's the color of money. Money money will be put towards Antonio Villaraigosa's independent expenditure campaigns. Because the stakes are very high for Villaraigosa. He has to come in at least second to Newsom in the June 5th primary. And as we were saying, that's less than three weeks to go, and so there's going to be a lot of money. There's going to be ads all over California. They are already on behalf of Eurogos's campaign. Um, I've been getting in the mail these these glossy brochures, and um, it's going to be a big push in the next few weeks. Well, to be continued, we'll obviously be following this very closely, as I'm sure many of you are listening in the next few weeks. That just about wraps it up for this week in California education, brought to you this week from the campus of University of Southern California and the Education Writers Association Conference. John, thanks for joining us here. It's been great to be at USC. And thanks to you, our listeners, for tuning in. Thanks to our sponsor, the S.D. Bechtel Jr. Foundation. See you next week. Thank you.